of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the burning bush is used as a church logo all over the world. Early in the 16th century, the Huguenots and the French Reformed churches decided to adopt an emblem of the burning bush together with the Latin expression flagor non consumor, which means I burn but am not consumed. Ironically, the burning bush could also be found among the artwork of the church responsible for burning French Reformed believers who saw it as a prophetic picture of Mary who gave birth to Jesus but remained forever a virgin. Well, many years later, when the man responsible for binding and printing the acts of their major assembly put the emblem of a burning bush on the front cover, it soon, came, or soon became a logo associated with the Scottish Presbyterian churches. This emblem came with some more Latin words, which mean, yet it was not consumed. And the example that I included on the liturgy sheet this week is still being used by our sister churches in Scotland. Well, from Scotland, the emblem traveled to Presbyterian churches all over the world with slight adjustments to the shape of the symbol and the words that accompany it. For example, in Ireland, the motto is burning but flourishing. Churches that have the burning bush as their emblem, they use it as a symbol of the suffering of the church in this age. The abiding and preserving presence of God in the midst of, uh, of the church, and ultimately the self-revelation of God to his people. This is the gospel I preach to you under the following theme. The Lord comforts his suffering church from the burning bush. We'll see that the Lord appears on holy ground, that he attends to our prayers, and that he assures us of his victory. The time of slavery promised by the Lord in Genesis 15 was coming to an end. And the Lord had set Moses apart from birth, blessed him with zeal for God's people, and then refined him for 40 years among the Midianites. You can read about that in Exodus chapter 2. When Moses was 80 years old, he had learned the patience and the humility of a shepherd and was still healthy enough to live outside, to feed off the land, and to do all the things needed to lead a flock of sheep across the wilderness. He still cared for his father-in-law's flock, we read at the beginning of Exodus chapter 3. Rather than getting his own flock, even after these 40 years, which showed that during all these years, he was still expecting to return to deliver his people from the Egyptians. Well, the Holy Spirit in our text reveals that Moses remained interested in the wonder of God's creation, and his experience in the wilderness confirms that the burning bush that he turned to look aside at was not just an optical illusion caused by flowers or by strange light reflections. And although for the fearful, a burning bush in the wilderness would be a reason to run away to avoid the wildfires. Moses was drawn in, and he said, 
I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Well, the great sight that Moses turned aside to see turned out to be the angel of the Lord who appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. The angel of the Lord is introduced in our text as an angel that should already be known to us because we read of this angel in Genesis 16 when he appeared to Hagar in the desert and exhorted her to return to the church. And although the distinction is kept clear in our text, the angel of the Lord is very closely associated with the Lord who saw and God who called out, as you can see in verse 4. Moses could learn for himself the depth of God's glory and the plurality of the persons in the triune God, who as one true God is intimately involved with the lives of all his creatures. Exodus 3 describes an appearance of God on earth, which is called a theophany. And Moses would soon find out that it was the Lord who was meeting with him on that special mountain, which was known as both Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai. Well, the burning bush was a clear display of God's sovereign power over all creation. For only the creator could control the effects of the flame of fire in such a way that they didn't consume the bush and turn its leaves and its branches into dust and ashes. Yet it appears that the Lord God, who had hardly been mentioned at all in the first few chapters, and who had permitted his people to suffer so many years of, of anguish and hardships, that Lord was hardly known to Moses. When the Lord calls Moses by name two times, Moses responds in a very ordinary, very casual way to say, here I am, which is like saying, yeah, it's me. Well, Moses still had a lot to learn about the holiness of the Lord. And as he draws closer to the bush, he is stopped abruptly with the command, do not come near. It's in verse 5. Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. The one to whom the Lord would later give the instructions for the tabernacle was blessed with the foretaste of the gospel of the holy ground. If you look at Exodus 3, verse 8, you can see that the Lord describes, summarizes this visit as the Lord coming down to the earth, just like he had done when he walked with Adam and Eve in, in the garden. The holiness of heaven touched down on the earth, and Moses was commanded to show his respect for his almighty creator, by removing his sandals from his feet. Well, sandals carry dirt. Sandals make us think of travel. And when we take our sandals off, we, we show our humility, our desire to stay a while, to remain, to hear, and to pay attention. And if the announcement that he had made, that God had made the ground holy by his presence was not enough, 
the Lord further revealed his holiness with the words in verse 6, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses learned that the great God of the patriarchs, who were very much alive with the Lord in glory, was also the God of his dad, the God of his father, Amram. Once again, the Lord made it very clear that he was doing a great and a powerful work through the generations, through believers and their children. God who appeared to him on the mountain is not only almighty in glory and in power, but also eternal in his loving relationship with believers and their children in the covenant. And just as Moses learned that he as an individual, a man, a shepherd watching sheep, just as he was a part of this great historical work of God through all the generations, because his father trusted in the Lord. So also we can see the blessing of being a part of the same history. We also are in the place of God's saving work in the history of the world through the covenant. The combination of God's holiness and God's love led Moses to hide his face. He was afraid to look at this amazing God. That picture, that picture of a mighty mediator servant now barefoot and covering his face in fear before the most holy God in his gracious appearance in the burning bush, that picture should be etched in our minds. Do you see how that picture, so early in the history of Revelation, captures the gospel in a nutshell for us today? God's plan to send a mediator to earth, to, to plead our cause before his throne. His holiness and our need that ought to be etched in our minds like a flame of fire in a bush that is not consumed. It leads us to fall on our knees in worship. We see our God. We see his grace. We see him coming down to us. The history of salvation repeats that gracious theme of the Lord who comes down, who makes the ground holy, who intervenes. The Lord came looking for Adam and Eve in the garden after the fall. The Lord appeared to the patriarchs. He spoke to Moses in the burning bush. And then again, he dwelt among Israel in the cloud, the tabernacle. And the temple and all this is pointing to the day when the Son of God would take on our human flesh and the Holy Spirit would later come with flames of fire on Pentecost. The picture of our God in his relationship with his people. Well, the history of salvation repeatedly mentions the theme of that relationship between the Lord our God and believers and their children as his people. And now our bodies are holy ground. We are temples of that holy God who appeared to Moses in the burning bush. 
We are temples in which God dwells by his spirit. And we are called to stand in awe of God's work within our hearts, to remove our sandals, to rest in the peace that Christ has obtained for us by his death. The holy God reached down to, in love to mankind lost in misery in their sins to announce that just as he is, was God to our ancestors in the line of the covenant promises, he is also God to us in our distress. We have a holy God who is willing to reach down to us in his outpouring love because the Lord attends to our prayers. The gospel message revealed in Exodus 2, starting already at verse 23, all the way to 3, verse 12, is that the enemy did not manage to swallow up the people of God. The Israelites were being burned by afflictions, but they were not consumed. Now, although it appears that they may have been relying on the gods of Egypt for a while, at some point, the people of Israel who were groaning because of their slavery, they cried out to the Lord. You can see that change in Exodus 2, verse 23. The slavery, the affliction, the suffering, the horrible treatment under their evil taskmasters was like a scourge of discipline that brought the people of God to their knees in humble dependence upon the Lord, the God of their fathers. The Lord can use hardships and government oppression to reveal to us how much we depend on his sovereign power to drive us to pray more fervently for his help and his rescue. The prayer of God's people coming to him out of the midst of their trials made it clear that the flames of suffering were not ultimately consuming them. When he commissioned Moses as leader and rescuer of his people, the Lord connected it very closely to the cries of the people. The Lord attends to our prayers by coming down beside us, by speaking from his holiness and his love. Well, the blessed words of comfort that Moses heard and later told the Israelites about continues to comfort and encourage us in the tribulations of our lives. What a blessing it is to hear the comforting words from the Lord that he sees our afflictions, that he hears our cries, that he knows our suffering. Exodus 3, verse 7. And this theme is so important that the Lord repeats it again in Exodus 3, verse 9. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. That's the gospel that we sing about in Psalm 34 and Psalm 65. Although the Lord is in heaven, the Lord's eyes are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cries so that he hears our prayers. Brothers and sisters, we are encouraged in reading this again to cry out to the Lord in our distress, to trust 
in his sovereign power to enrich your lives with the promises of his grace. Although we may wonder why the Lord doesn't always respond immediately to give us respite from our suffering, the Lord is always in control. He sees, he hears, he knows, and in his grace, he also preserves us. Do not be afraid. Though we burn, we are not consumed, for the Lord is always at work. And the central promise of chapter 3 is found in the verse between God's announcements in verses 7 and 9 that the prayers of the church have come to him. In Exodus 3, verse 8, we read, And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The gospel message for the church is not only that God sees and cares but also that he is eager to take action so that his people might again live with him in fellowship. The Lord shows that he has more in store for his people than just slavery and affliction and suffering. The promise for the Israelites was that they would be free from the devil-influenced, hate-filled oppressors so that they might be able to serve their master in a good and broad way. Land. The nations that the Lord speaks about were those that dwelt in the different regions of the promised land, whom the Lord announced would eventually be removed because of their persistence in sin. The Lord promised his church that the enemies would be removed, that the meek would inherit the land. The physical blessings that the Lord described make it very clear that it's a good thing when the Lord is our shepherd, when he is the one who is leading us out of, through the valley of death into the green pastures. You see the, the, the comparison, the contrast here, instead of crammed slave quarters, his people could look forward to spacious properties in a land flowing with milk and honey, an abundance of milk points to large crops and fertile grazing pastures. And an abundance of honey points to lots of flowers and healthy fruit trees. So that together these two words promise a place of riches and peace and safety. The promised land is presented as a type of paradise goal. It's consistent with all the Lord's descriptions of life in the kingdom of heaven when he is our shepherd, when he takes care of us, for he knows exactly what we need. Our text teaches us about how the Lord deals with his covenant people. The hope that the Lord gives us today is much greater than just a good promised land flowing with milk and honey, but it is a promise of an eternal home where there is no sin at all. The Lord does not want us to live an unhappy life in bondage for all eternity. And so he urges us to cry out to him for deliverance, for the new life 
in Jesus Christ, the life that he has obtained for us by his work. And so we pray for deliverance from the evil one. And we pray for strength to resist temptations. And we pray for liberation from the sins that entangle our feet. And we look to the Lord who comforts his people from the burning bush with the promise that he attends to our prayers. In him, we can be sure we have the victory. For we know the victory of Jesus Christ. We know that he wants us to live as joyful citizens in the kingdom of heaven where we can worship him in freedom. The Lord announced that he came down to deliver his people from slavery and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. That's in verse 8. He came down. But he only announces this after his holy splendor touched down on the earth on a lonely mountain west of the wilderness of Midian. It makes us ask the question, if, if the Lord came down to deliver his people, why did he need to speak to an old, humble fugitive who was leading his sheep far from home? Moses heard his name called out because the Lord who had raised him up, who had prepared him for this mission, was planning to use him as an instrument to bring Israel out of Egypt. Although it doesn't seem to make sense to Moses, nor to any other leaders ordained by God, in his wisdom, the Lord Almighty decided to use people to carry out his church-building work. Couldn't God just speak to Pharaoh from heaven and get the job done quickly? As Moses stood with his feet bare, his face covered in the holy presence of Almighty God of his fathers who had descended to earth in his glory, his question is clear. Verse 11, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? We are often humbled by the responsibilities the Lord gives to us to represent his name and his glory in, in a hostile world. And we feel inadequate for the tasks that we need to do. When we ask God, who are we, that we should do this, we also know that we need his help. And the Lord's response to Moses shows that he understood very well, that his servants need the Lord on their side. And the Lord's answer is very clear and very compassionate. First, he reminds Moses that the Lord himself would be with him. This is all that we need to know to have confidence in our calling. We never have to face God's enemies alone. We are mere instruments in the hands of a sovereign God who knows the end from the beginning, who told Abraham exactly what would happen. The Lord who promised Abraham that after 400 years of affliction, he would bring judgment on the nation they served so that they would come out from there with great possessions, 
was the same God who promised to be with Moses at this time. The servant of God can be assured of the victory of his mission if it is the Lord's mission because the Lord himself guarantees success. This is the confidence that our Lord Jesus had also when he came to earth to deliver his people from sin. This is the confidence that we may have when we faithfully walk with the Lord our God who calls us to serve him faithfully. Well, in his grace, the Lord God also gave Moses a sign that he himself had sent him in verse 12. When you have brought this people, or when you brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. You will serve God on this mountain. Well, this mountain that the Lord was talking about was Mount Horeb, which is also known as Mount Sinai, the very place where the Lord would meet with Moses to give him the Ten Commandments that were written by God's finger on two tablets of stone. The sign that the Lord gave to Moses was that when they met again, when they, when, they, when they came together at the first checkpoint, the church would be celebrating her deliverance by serving God in worship. The Lord is teaching us that we can see that the Lord has accomplished his purposes when we have the opportunity, the freedom to obey God's law and desire to live according to all his commandments in our redeemed life. The sign of the victory of the Lord is a church worshiping his most holy and awesome name. And once again, our text reveals the significance of Jesus Christ, whom the Lord sent to deliver his church from the evil one so that we can worship him, so that we can live in fellowship with him in all the laws of the Lord. When we are overwhelmed by our task. The Lord reminds us that he is with us and he assures us of the victory by pointing to the Holy Spirit who gives us the desire to worship him in all holiness. If you see the sign of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit in your life, you are seeing the victory of the Lord God most high. The Lord comforts his suffering church by the gospel of the burning bush. Everything that the Lord told Moses is also true for us in a much richer measure in Jesus Christ. Since the Son of God came down to earth to suffer and die to pay for our sins, we may live in peace with God. We may know that he hears our prayers in Jesus' name. The burning bush is a reminder that although we may suffer the fires of tribulation, we will not be consumed. Although there are many things in this life that can cause us to despair, the Lord gives us hope by directing our eyes to the eternal King, Jesus Christ. If it depended on us, if it depended on our own strength or the strength of, of our leaders, there would be very little hope. But we praise the Lord that he promises to be with us. He assures us of the victory. And we know that 
we will meet him again face to face, 1 Corinthians 13, in the fellowship of love so clearly revealed on the mountain of God. It's like he says to us again, sign of my victory will be that you will see me face to face again at that checkpoint in the promised land, the eternal kingdom. Brothers and sisters, do not lose heart. Hear the comforting words of our God, the Lord, who speaks to us from the burning bush. If you are praying, if you are worshiping him, it's a sign that you are his forever. Amen.